Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. They have and they can oppress believers. They can and they have and will possess unbelievers. There are no atheists among them. Not one demon would say, there's no God. There are no agnostics. No demon was uncertain if there was a God. No, James says the demons believe and tremble. For today's study, we begin the fifth chapter in the book of Mark. We will look at the first 20 verses in a powerful message Pastor Sam has entitled, The End is Near. We will be considering the real-life story of when Jesus healed a demon-possessed man and cast the demons that possessed him into a herd of swine. Let's listen in. Mark 5, verse 1, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled away by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains, and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. The end is near. It sounds ominous. But the question we have to ask is the end of what? And because this chapter focuses on three people in very serious situations, I would say three desperate people. First, this demon-possessed man. Next time, we'll look at a a stressed out father who has a dying child, and then a woman who has been bleeding, hemorrhaging for 12 years and found no relief. The only one not stressed out, at least not mentioned as being in desperate straits psychologically would be the little girl, but she was at the point of death. Well, the end is near. The end of what? The end here is the end of this man's suffering. The end of that father's fear for the loss of his daughter. The end of that woman's alienation because of her condition. So three serious situations, very desperate people. And we look at the first again this morning, the demon-possessed man. Listen, this is not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. We will still find application, of course, but this is a real person, someone's child, someone's brother, someone's friend, who somehow, at some point, opened the door. And in the midst of that, demons entered in, possessed, and took control of him. The description of his living condition is hopeless, heartbreaking, terrifying. The demons torturing him physically, tormenting him mentally, alienating him socially, separating him spiritually. Torturing him, we'll read elsewhere of demons casting people into the fire and into the water, tormenting him mentally. No one could tame him, we read. But listen, that word tame 
Well, it sounds bad when you're speaking of a man, but it means to calm or to quiet or to comfort him. Alienated socially to the Gentiles, he was crazy dangerous. Separated spiritually to the Jews, he was unclean. Contact with him would have defiled them, rendering them unfit for worship, for fellowship for service. Luke 8:27 adds, he wore no clothes and confirms he had no house, but he lived among the dead in the tombs. The picture couldn't be bleaker, couldn't be more serious. His body, mind, emotions all under the demon's control. So he was hopeless, he was helpless, he was doomed until that day. All attempts we read to control him had failed. He was already bound within. He refused to be bound by them. So the little freedom he had to roam among the mountains and to roam among the tombs, he was not going to allow man to take that from him. Tormented, alienated, hopeless, he spent his days and nights, we read, crying out and cutting himself with stones. He becomes self-destructive because there's just no relief from his suffering and pain. Demons, by the way, mentioned 49 times in Scripture. 36 of them are in the gospel. So Jesus has a lot to say about demons and often interacts and deals with demonic forces. Demons, therefore, are real. They're fallen angels. They're a part of that crowd created by and for God, once worshipped the true and living God. But when Satan rebelled and began to, well, worship himself instead of the Lord, these fell with him. These rebelled with him. It's thought that they were a third of the angels that fell with Satan. They have... And they can oppress believers. They can and they have and will possess unbelievers. There are no atheists among them. Not one demon would say there's no God. There are no agnostics. No demon was uncertain if there was a God. No, James says the demons believe and tremble. Why? Well, they had been in the presence of God. They knew they were created by and for God. They understand that Jesus is not only their creator, that he is and will be their judge. Colossians 3.16, for any unfamiliar and for those familiar, an important reminder. By him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So in that one sentence, we're told all things created by him, through him, for him. Satan fell first. These angels fell with him. They become the demons that we read about in Scripture. Well, verse 6, we read, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran 
and worshiped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 8, 29 adds, before the time, the torment that the demon is saying, please don't torment me. Interesting because he and those with him were tormenting this man. And they don't want the same judgment. The torment they're concerned about will cover in just a moment. But back up with me and note, when he sees Jesus, he runs and worships him. It sounds like the man is running toward Jesus, and certainly that has to be the case. But when he cries out, it's actually the demon speaking through him. How do we know? Because when he says, I implore you that you do not torment me, he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, a Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. We don't know how many there are in a demon legion. Only God knows that. But we know there are enough to drown a massive amounts of swine later in the story. So here's what's taking place. These demons have possessed this man, taken control of this man. They're destroying him, alienating him, tormenting him, torturing him. Jesus comes onto the scene. And by the way, the disciples with him, they had just survived the storm. And, and it's like, finally, they hit land. And immediately, another trial, another issue, one far beyond them at this point. So the question is, or, or the request is, do not torment me before the time. The place of torment is called the abyss. In Greek, it's the abusis or abuso. And uh, it speaks of somewhere deep within the heart of the earth. He says, they begged him earnestly, would not send them out of the country. Luke 8.32 says, into the abyss. So they said, don't send us out of here. Luke mentions that they say, and don't send us into there. The abyss, well, only twice outside Revelation, I think I mentioned that. One of them is in Romans 10, 7, where it is called the abode of the dead. The other here in Luke, or the other in Luke 8 made reference to that in another context. It's the prison designed for evil spirits. Revelation 9, Revelation 11, Revelation 17, Revelation 20 all mention this place. And they all mention it as if it's a real place, because, of course, it is. It's a prison in which evil spirits are confined until God chooses to loose them. It's not the lake of fire. We read about that in Revelation 20.10. But it will be Satan's home when Jesus returns to rule and reign on the earth during the millennium. We know that Satan, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, is bound. He's cast, we read, into the pit. 
He shut up, and that's a really good thing because he has never shut up. He accuses us day and night before the Lord. He accuses us to one another. He accuses the Lord to us. He's a liar. He's a tempter. He's a deceiver, a thief, a murderer. So he's bound. He's cast in. He's shut up. He's sealed for a thousand years. And Revelation 20 goes on to tell us why, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now, there are some, less now than there were 40 years ago or 100 years ago, who have come to believe somehow that this is the millennium, that we're living in that glorious time prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament, promised by Jesus, you know, the lion lays down with the lamb. They beat their, their swords into plowshares. And, and, and just, it's, you know, peace and, and prosperity covers the earth. Listen, all that's real. The earth is going to be like the Garden of Eden during the millennial reign of Christ. But I've noticed it's not exactly like that yet. In fact, it couldn't be further from that today than it ever was. Jesus said it would be like the days of Noah. We touched on this at the end of our last study, like the days of Lot. What were things like in the days of Noah? God decided I'd have to kill everyone, flood the earth, take out everyone and save one family. What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities there during the days of Lot? God destroyed it by fire and brimstone. So the world, and you are aware of this, of course, it's not getting better. People aren't getting better. The world is growing more and more wicked, just as Jesus warned it would. The good news, and it really is good news, is that he will return. He will bind Satan. He will cast him into the pit. He will shut him up and seal him in for a thousand years. That's the abyss. That's the abuso. That's the place that these demons are saying, please don't send us there. Not yet. In Revelation 9, verses 1 through 12, before Satan is cast into the pit, he is given the key to the bottomless pit, to the abyss. And those who plead here, don't send us there. Well, there are many who are there, constrained, controlled, kept for the day when God will release them and they will participate in his judgment on a Christ-rejecting, God-hating world. He gives Satan the key to the bottomless pit and gives them authority and power. He commands them, and you should check it out later, only to harm men who do not have God's seal upon their forehead. This would be the 144,000 sealed in Revelation 7. There are 144,000 left when you move on into Revelation 14 and such. So, so they're sealed, they're protected, and he tells these demons as he releases them from the pit to go and torment and torture men, but not those who have the seal on their forehead. We find that they're limited because they can't kill, but they do torment and he limits them to five months. They sting like a scorpion during that time. We'll read that men will seek death, but death is on a holiday. Death escapes them. They will try to take their lives, but they won't be able to die. So they suffer without hope. 
Revelation 9.11 says they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. Abaddon means destruction. His name in Greek is Apollyon, which means destroyer. So the destruction that comes from the destroyer through the demons that will be released, listen, it's a horrific time on planet Earth, but today there are things that we read of and hear about for which there is no rational explanation. And, and the things that are going on that men are capable of, and they confirm there's more happening than some mental disorder or some, some emotional problems. Demon possession is real. If you're a Christian, you have no reason to worry about it. So what do demons do and what can they do to believers? They can lie to us. They can intimidate us. They can threaten us. They can tempt us. They can do anything that Satan did to Jesus. There was no chance that Jesus could be possessed by a demon. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did always those things that pleased the Father, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Here, here's the interesting thing, though. We read just a couple chapters back, they had accused him of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Well, that sets the stage for the greatest miracle in this chapter. And that's this man who has been so tormented and so devastated and has become so hopeless being freed from all that with a word from the Lord. Verse 11 says, Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged him. That word begged is big in this particular section. Already one demon begged him. Now all the demons begged him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. And there were about 2,000. He's not telling us how many demons there were. He's telling us how many swine there were, how many pigs there were. So these demons that had inhabited that man, there had to be at least 2,000 if they were able to fill the 2,000 um, swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's thought that demons desire embodiment. And if that's the case, this makes perfect sense. They're like, hey, you're casting us out of him. We know we got to go. If you say it, we're gone. And so don't send us out of the country. Don't send us into the abyss. Not before the time, but do send us into the swine. And he permitted that. He permitted them. We know Satan's MO. He comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. And immediately, the, the swine, they just race down into the sea. There's a bit of a cliff in that place. It says, down the steep place into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Now, before we look at the responses, and they're huge, they're important. Note, I began saying this is not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. Nevertheless, there are a lot 
of points of application for any and all in bondage today. Before we deal with that, though, I want to say I'm not someone with a high level and extreme level of sensitivity when it comes to spiritual forces around me. I think that might be a good thing for me. I've been in very awkward situations where I was kind of oblivious. Things were happening around me and I just thought, well, that's weird and he's strange and that's, I've never seen anything like that. But I was able to just keep going. My wife, on the other hand, extremely sensitive to anything that's not just negative, but especially those things that are demonic. And because we're both aware, there was a time we didn't know, now we do know. She'll be like, you need to be careful or you need to watch out or, or here's what was really going on. Sometime back, I was downtown. It's always an adventure walking around downtown. It's become more and more that over the years, but it's been a little while. And I know I've told the story to some of you. I'm walking downtown and I see this guy pretty disheveled, you know, he's kind of a cross between hair-wise like Kramer on Seinfeld and, and Doc in Back to the Future. So you, you can picture that. And then he's, he's got eyes like, well, if Marty Feldman uh, married Betty Davis and had a child, you know, she's got eyes that are just bugging out of his head. And there was a song, right? He's got, she's got Betty Davis eyes. I, I don't think that was a compliment. But anyway, I see this guy coming. He has no shirt. He's huge. He's, he's obviously irritated and, and, you know, upset. And he's about, oh, a block, maybe a little less than a block, but walking kind of quickly toward me. And he's going, raw is God. Raw is God. And I'm like, raw is God. Sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, raw. That's the Egyptian sun God. So this guy is freaking me out a little bit. I have, I have no thought that maybe it's demonic. I just think another weirdo downtown. Because, hey, we, we lived in Laguna Beach when we were teenagers, right? I mean, we've seen it all. And so, so anyway, I, I'm thinking, should I cross the street? Should I ditch into a store? I, I'm way too embarrassed to turn and run. And so I, but I'm trying to figure out my options. And all of a sudden, I notice as he approaches and gets closer, he recognizes me. I can't tell you how I knew that. I was just sure he knew who I was. And all of a sudden, his demeanor changes. He's still weird, but he starts to look like he's scared. And I'm looking behind me like, you know, <laughs> what's going on? The police coming up. Do I got the guards? Maybe angels, right? But, but here's what, what happens next. He starts to say something different. And, and I think to say, I was never saying raw is God. Raw food is good, he starts to say. And I'm like, wait a minute, raw food is good? We know that's not true. And raw is God? We know that's not true. But he was changing his tune, if you will. And I realized that, that because I was only standing there and it was just me, that, that what he could sense is something, well, that the demons always know. Jesus lives within me. That the Holy Spirit has taken up permanent residence within me. And, and that's why he who is in the world, we have no reason to fear him because he who is within us is greater than he who's in within the world. 
2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 tell us the following about Satan and his followers. And no wonder it says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Today, we see more and more acts of violence and horror played out in our society with nary a mention of demon possession. Nope, just diagnosis and medication. Now don't be surprised by this. Think of Charles Baudelaire's quote where he says, the devil's cleverest while is to make men believe that he does not exist. The evidence of his existence is everywhere, but the world doesn't want to believe it any more than they want to believe in the existence of Jesus Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.